Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And we're having another conversation again today with NDEC team as part of our series leading up into their summer conference that's coming up and also the launch of their evaluation instrument, which will be part of what we're talking about over the course of our conversation today. I want to welcome back Kim Snyder and Ryan Rickenbaugh of that NDEC team, along with special guests for today's episode, Bobby Truey, who is a school attorney. And I'm going to actually just really turn things over uh, to Kim for introductions and a little bit of the backstory on today's conversation and uh, why we're really passionate about having the opportunity to share it with everybody listening in. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate, again, the opportunity to do these podcasts. We've gotten a lot of feedback from our podcast from a couple of weeks ago around recruitment and retention, and we absolutely love getting that feedback. So if you're listening and you have some comments that you'd like to send our way, we always listen to the feedback we get. So thank you again, Andrew, for making this happen. And thanks, everybody, for listening about the seed process. We, Ryan and Julie Downing and I, talk all the time on the daily about the seed process. And we're so thankful that we have people that are listening and talking about it more and more every day. I know one of the aspects of seed is teacher and principal evaluation because we're educator effectiveness. And so uh, traditionally, of course, evaluation fits right in that conversation. So probably one of the things that everybody is wondering now that the Nebraska teacher and principal performance standards, NTPPS, now that those have been revised, when will the updated evaluation instrument that's aligned to those standards? When will that be available? And we're really hoping to have those out by the end of May, so the end of this school year, so that if districts are wanting to take a look at that and work with that and align that to the work that they've done with evaluation in their in their schools before, then they have that to work through the summer. So fingers crossed that we're going to be able to have that available. I guess I probably better put a disclaimer out there, though, because Within this seed process that we're building out and that we'll continue to talk about to anybody who will listen, the evaluation process itself takes a little bit of a backseat. So whenever we ask districts about their teacher and principal data, typically the comment we get back, yes, well, we have an evaluation process. And then they go into the evaluation process is what they use to evaluate their teachers and then also to provide support and development for their teachers. But what happens is there's a little disconnect because when we go on accreditation visits for continuous improvement or when we talk to teacher groups or principal groups and we say, how is your evaluation process in your school or district connected to continuous improvement? Response, usually what we get back is, oh, that's something separate that's something different from the continuous improvement process. So if you're thinking that you're going to listen to a podcast today that talks about how evaluation traditionally has been approached, this might be a little bit of a new twist. So I'm really anxious to hear people's feedback on this because again, we definitely appreciate that feedback and and want to listen to it. Um, One of the things that I should say is that the instrument itself that's going to be released probably the end of May of this year will be a very basic evaluation instrument. And that instrument is aligned to the revised NTPPS. So we tried to keep it as close as we could to the evaluation instrument that was aligned to the previous standards. 
called the NTPPF because it was a framework at that time, but we have changed the wording to align to the newly revised standards. So, but that's all it is. Uh, obviously we have rubrics that are aligned to that. Those have been created and have been available on our educator effectiveness website at the NDE website for a long time. So those have been available, but now there will be an actual evaluation instrument available. And I think there's one question that I get often, and I got it when I was an accreditation specialist, and I still get it today. And that is, what's the deadline for when districts have to submit their evaluation instrument to the NDE? And they're always a little surprised by my answer. And I think many times they don't believe me. <laughs> but what Rule 10 says is that if there are any changes to their policies, and I think it also adds the word procedures, but typically what the NDE collects is just evaluation policy. So if a district has a change in their evaluation policy, that's what they need to submit. And there's no deadline for that. It's just whenever they make a change, they need to submit that for approval. That's the policy. And typically districts have a very generic policy that covers everything. Now, what happens is what is stated in Nebraska legislation has to be in that policy. And sometimes there's little pieces of that legislation that doesn't show up in policy. A perfect example would be legislation requires in any district's evaluation process that the procedures must include an opportunity for staff members to provide written feedback to whatever feedback they've gotten on their evaluation. Sometimes that's not stated in a district policy, but if we ask them to submit their actual evaluation tool, we can see at the bottom that there is indeed a place for people to provide written feedback. So I think there's a little bit of confusion there. If you have your policy and it includes everything that state legislation says has to be in evaluation, then you're fine just submitting your policy. If we don't see everything, then we might have to ask you for your instrument. But we have lots of schools that have never submitted their evaluation instrument to us because we see it all in their policy. So wanted to clear up some of those things. Maybe that'll help. If you have any questions about it, let me know and either I can answer you or I can get you to the accreditation office where those experts from the NDE can help you too. So I wanted to say that just because we talk evaluation all the time, and there's a big connection to recruitment and retention. We talk often about teacher retention and how are we going to take care of the folks that we have because we're not necessarily going to have the bodies to fill some positions. And the use of evaluation can sometimes be seen as a punitive measure and may not be always conducive to conversations about growth and development. And so that's, that's where the seed process and the non-traditional twist to teacher growth and development comes. And that's why the seed team actually reached out to a school lawyer, because we don't know everything about what's happening with evaluation in districts. And we definitely want to include school law in these conversations because we know that's a big part of it. So that's why we have Bobby on this podcast. And we're really excited to have you hear his perspective and share his expertise and how it connects to the seed process. So I'm gonna be quiet and turn it over to Bobby and let those conversations begin. Really appreciate the uh, invite to be on the podcast here. And it's, it's an area that we feel very strongly about in our law firm. 
we're not just getting calls from schools about the strict requirements of the statutes and, and rule 10 all the time. We're having conversations with them about how do we attract teachers? We've had openings in for an English position for three months. How are we going to find that person? So I think to the extent the conversation is much more than just does your piece of paper comply with the statutes? We're getting those questions all day, every day. Um, it is true that often when, when our law firm and I suspect any other school lawyer is asked to step in and help uh, administrators assess a personnel situation they have going on, we typically do start with the paper, right? I mean, we have to make sure at a base level that when we provide advice to administrators that are working to implement their district's policies and evaluation procedures, that they at least have met the minimum. But rarely in a case that I'm involved is that the end game. In fact, it's usually the end game when it hasn't been done correctly. So there's a whole universe of conversations that we have with our clients beyond just what did you put on that piece of paper. And so that's why I'm just super excited to, to kind of talk about the concept, the, the mentality, the philosophy behind what's happening, because I think that is a very real impact on the way that cases that I get involved in and how they turn out. And so I appreciate the ability to be here and uh, look forward to the conversation. Well, thanks, Bobby. We're excited to have you join us. And as Kim said, sometimes people look at us cross-eyed when we when we say we're trying to really separate evaluation and and make it make it what it is, what it's supposed to do, because it obviously serves a, a purpose. But the time and the energy and the amount of conversations and the fact that those conversations have been so similar for so long you know, about how can we improve and how can we do better? It just seems like we're kind of stuck. And that's what the seed process, that, that main shift is, how can we really focus on support and development to where those end conversations aren't the priority? Because at the end of the day, they can't be, right? Like that's gotta be something that takes place, but it cannot be the be all end all when it comes to determining, do we have effective teachers or do we have effective principals? You know, I think back to my experiences as a principal and I felt guilty, but I, I spent very little time on the, the summative evaluation process because again, it was so hard. I'm a, I'm a conversation guy, always wanted to, to work with teachers along the way. Again, most principals, that's what they're focused on. But what I was really challenged by is, am I doing my job? Because at the end of the day, teachers that were really open to growth and wanted to challenge themselves, how oh, those conversations were, were awesome. And it was fun to, to provide support or to ask them what they needed and they would challenge themselves. But then on the other side of that, there were teachers that would just get glossy eyed when I try to have those conversations, right? They just, not that they were bad teachers, but they really didn't have a lot of interest in doing anything different. They were doing good enough. And that's what I think our our evaluation system is, it's just, are you good enough, right? And can you get the boxes checked? And what I realized was that it was hard to have leverage to prioritize growth when at the end of the day, if there was a dispute, if there was something that they're gonna challenge me on, I had to have that evaluation checkbox. But then I always thought to myself, how can I possibly sum up the effectiveness of a teacher in that type of a process? And I'm sure you've seen those from both ends of where, you know, the focus is on the checking the boxes. And I'm assuming those are difficult conversations and difficult, you know, if they go to hearings and, and lawyers are involved. But then on the other side, the amount of support development that maybe you can identify that a principal has done, 
but what if that wasn't noted or what if that wasn't summarized within the evaluation document itself, right? So talk to me a little bit about maybe what you've seen on both ends of the spectrum and you know, are there things that you listen to and see and you say, man, this is how it's done versus, wow, there's a lot of things that maybe could have been done differently, but at the end, how could that impact evaluation? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I would say, you know, I've, I've read a lot about evaluation philosophy and that sort of thing, mostly because if you get right down to it, you have to comply with the bare minimum standards, right? There's no doubt about that. The way the statutes talk about it is kind of like a prerequisite to being able to, if you have somebody who you don't think is meeting your standards, you know, being able to, to leave the school board and the administration with all of its options on the table to do what's best for kids. But at the end of the day, the statutes talk about that the purpose of this process is to help teachers improve. And when I have schools that are likely to get a hearing, it may be because there wasn't buy-in from the beginning. It truly was all done on paper. There weren't conversations, you know, marking the indicator you meet, you don't meet. That stuff absolutely has a role. But I don't think that in and of itself is the way that schools avoid having to go, for example, to a personnel hearing if somebody isn't meeting standards. When you got a teacher who's out there from the beginning, having good conversations with their principal, feeling like they are supported, knowing that that principal really does want them to be better, knowing that that principal has given them a fair shake to be better, that there's support all the way upline the administration for that sort of philosophy, looking at it from how do we grow you if you're meeting standards and how do we get you up to standards if you're not there. There's no way you're going to do that with one classroom observation per semester for a probationary teacher. It's just not possible. And so the schools that I see really successfully avoiding cases that are going to unfortunately hit my desk are those schools where it's so clear to everybody from the beginning and all the way through the process that these are our expectations. This is how we're going to help you try to meet those. That if you can't, there's no lack of, of effort throughout that process. And I can understand how you know, the school lawyer perspective might seem a little bit grislier. It might seem a little bit more like, well, we only call you in when it's time to, to give a notice of non-renewal or, or termination or cancellation to a certificate holder. But it, it is rarely that simple. And candidly, we get fewer hearings at those schools that embrace the concept of this is an improvement process, not a firing process. It just is the way that it goes. Anecdotally, I, I can tell you there's no substitute for when somebody believes there's been buy-in, that they've been heard, that that not only carries credibility with that staff member when it comes time to make decisions, but with the school board. There's no substitute as a principal for seeing your work on display at a school board hearing where you're having to describe the efforts that you went to to help a teacher or, or any certificate holder improve. That could be a superintendent helping a principal improve. And so I think it's easy to think, well, the school lawyers are just saying, make sure you jump to this very low hurdle. And then all of a sudden we got everything we need. That's just not how it happens. Most of what the testimony is at a hearing, for example, is a lot more about all the efforts that were made and a lot less about when I sat down to put pen to paper to finish the summative. You know, that's one of the reasons we wanted to visit with you because the C team, we're making rounds across the state, just visiting with different schools and different principals and superintendents and teacher teams, just to listen on what they're seeing that really is working or what they're striving for, what are the barriers that they're, they're facing, how can the NDE and our role, how can we support them? And what's so interesting to me is in talking to you prior is that you've seen just such a wide spectrum, right? You've seen hearings that were probably really, really 
really uncomfortable. And then you've seen those hearings where I love how you said that a principal being able to put on display, here's the process that we've gone through. And what we're trying to do as a C team is capture some of those, those ideas and help all principals and schools understand that we really want to prioritize that support and development and let evaluation serve its role at the end. But what do you see as maybe some barriers to, you know, to that mindset, right? Like it's, because it's not, like you said it, it's not for lack of effort or lack of want to, but it's our opinion that starting with evaluation, like I think about the beginning of the year and every principal is required to have teachers sign off on the evaluation document, right? And I think about, okay, how can we help principals dive into a, an in-depth collaborative discussion about the support and development that's going to take place throughout the year, right? And get teacher feedback. But again, I was a principal. I know how short time is. I know how priorities are priorities. What do you maybe see as the disconnect through your experiences and seeing those hearings that are, it's clear that the school did not have their support and development in, in order versus those that really were able to put that stuff on display. How do you see both getting to where they were? I think it, I mean, I'm envisioning the back to school in-service, right? Where the principal sit down with the staff they evaluate. And I think there's a fundamental difference between somebody who talks about my job through the evaluation process is to be a support for you, to help you, to, if you think you've got areas where I can help you, let me know. I will do the same and I'll be honest with you. Compare that to a principal who says, you know, it's got one slide. <laughs> Here's the bell schedule. Here's where you park. The, compare that Maybe to somebody who says, I mean, again, I, I, I see those schools that are effective and I know, I mean, when you got a rock star principal, I know that what they're talking about at that back to school in-service isn't just, here's the instrument and here's the policy. That almost sets it up as adversarial from the beginning. It sets it up as like, a, I'm checking these boxes and if you're not meeting our standards, we're going to have a discussion. It just puts you in this position to make it easier, I think, as the principal to say, well, I can meet the bare minimum and it's easy enough. It, when you're not embracing the concept that the purpose of this process is to help people improve. The statutes don't talk about it that way. Contrary to what some may believe, school attorneys don't think of it that way. So I think the schools that I know have just rock star principals that are out there talking about my mindset is helping you grow versus those that think, yeah, and I'll be in your classroom for an hour each semester. It makes a difference when it comes time to have difficult conversations. You've built up that credibility and that trust. When it isn't there, and especially when we have, you know, a situation where we have just barely met the boxes, I can tell you right now, the conversation that I have with those principals before they're going to go testify in front of their school board is your work is going to be on display. And you're going to be talking about all these things that you saw and don't think are sufficient. And it may or may not be in the document the way that you've explained it to me. So unless you've got sort of the mindset of this is a, an improvement process, this is helping somebody get better. I think you're sending the message to staff from the beginning that this process that I do for you is much more for me to have accountability upline than it is for us to work together to find ways to improve. Those are much more likely to go to a hearing. Uh, the attorneys and, and representatives that work for the NSCA know that. They know the dynamics in each building because they will talk to other educators in that building prior to having a hearing. And when you get the sense from the entire staff that, yeah, this Rickenbaugh guy, man, I got to tell you, you know, he spends a lot of time talking to me and working on areas and ways that I can improve. And yeah, we do the evaluation process, but I don't think your standard teacher is, is just thinking about, oh man, well, I guess they have it on the paper. So 
nothing to see here. Their buy-in to that process uh, as almost opposite as it may seem to kind of an old school mentality makes it more likely they're going to go to a hearing or less, depending on how that teacher felt from the beginning about the support that they were getting. Now, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking some of the screw ups on my end as a principal, just I didn't want evaluation to be a big conversation right at the beginning of the year because it had that negative connotation. So I was one who, you know, I did what I had to do as far as informing, but it's that connecting, like you said, it's connecting purpose to process and knowing what I know now, you can really set the tone by spending time to talk. I'm thinking about those teachers who are just doing the minimum. They probably would have looked at those things differently had I spent the time and prioritized purpose and connecting that to process. I think that's that's great advice. And again, I think I tried to do that throughout the year, but really setting that as a tone and really putting that in front of teachers as, hey, this is this is how we're going to approach this. I think that would have made a really big difference. And I know there's principals out there that, are, that do a really good job uh, of that. And that's really who we want to support to help better understand what are the barriers to that? What are the things that, that principals need? And then that's going to help those that maybe they know they want to do better. They know they need to do better, but they're just not quite sure what that could look like. Or unfortunately, they might not have support from their superintendent or their board of education. And those are bigger conversations and broader conversations, which is fine. But I think your perspective is really interesting and helpful because you have, you've seen such a wide array of how people approach this. And it's our job to determine how are we going to maximize what it is we know we want to do, right? And I've even thought at times, like I said, avoiding evaluation because it's, it has a negative connotation, but that doesn't do any good either, right? It's connecting it to your process. And you know, when we talk about the seed process and through the standards, the NTPPS, it's a lot about creating that environment of trust and building relationships. Because ultimately, I think the most effective support and development is when teachers and principals are taking ownership. They know they have the support, they know they have the room to, to work, the time, and they're identifying what it is they need. And they're asking questions because you can't, and you know that trickles right down to what we want for students. So that's why I love the role of the principal because they have so much influence on setting that environment and creating, and that's, I mean, you ask any principal, that's probably why they got in the, in, in the business, right? To have an impact and have influence. There's not a better job in the world where you are working with humans to make them get better at their job and make them feel better about their job. And we know research supports, if that happened, if that collective efficacy is happening, what an impact that has on, that has on students. A quick reflection as I'm sitting here listening, when I took this position several years ago, I started out with just a conversation with several stakeholders across the state about what does it mean to be effective? The conversation used to be, what does it mean to be an ineffective teacher in Nebraska? And I sat for two days with a group of stakeholders and could never come to an agreement. And I thought, why are we starting with what's it mean to be ineffective? Let's talk about what it means to be effective. So as I had those conversations, the comments that I got from folks in the feedback was, you know what, we love having these conversations and we believe in everything we stated about what it means to be effective. But at the end of the day, what we think doesn't matter because our school lawyers are going to ensure that we're checking the boxes and making sure that we're doing what we have to do. So 
it was implied or it was stated basically that it was the check boxes and the compliance and school law was thrown in there as what was keeping them from doing what they felt was the right thing. And there's a reason why I haven't reached out or haven't encouraged myself or my team members to reach out to school law to have these conversations. And that's why I, I really thought that maybe there was this adversarial relationship and that ne'er the two shall meet. And so it's just so refreshing to talk to you, Bobby. And I don't know if you have a comment about that or that's just a, a conversation that I've had with several people. I understand exactly where that comes from. And that is the notion that the more complicated the evaluation instrument and policy and process are, the more likely it is a school lawyer is going to say, that's just going to trip you up. The way that I've started thinking about it is similar to that, is that no principal got into this business because they want to terminate teachers. No superintendent became a superintendent because I want to terminate a principal. That, that's not why people are in this business. So that came up sort of as, as a kind of a hard stop against the idea that, well, doesn't matter though, you still have to have an instrument that makes very clear that you can fire somebody or you can't. And I think everybody in my law firm just does not think about it that way. Are there some school lawyers that have? No doubt. Um, I, think, I think that's true. But what principals are doing day to day is what they were telling you they want to do. The problem is if we leave schools with this notion that, well, the school lawyer says it better be one page and have a yes or no, and that's it. I think what that's left a lot of schools to do then is to think, well, okay, so then what we have to do is to make sure that our evaluation instrument is 87 pages long so that we can do the stuff that we were trained to do, but still make the school lawyers happy. And I just think that is a, that is a misstep because I don't think you're going to solve in the document. It's never going to be a substitute for forming those relationships and developing that trust. And so what we tell our clients all the time is you should have a process that you are proud of. Because that's going to show up when you're testifying. If in the thankfully unlikely but possible event that you're testifying and when your school board looks at you and can see that you're passionate about what you did, they're not going to say, oh, thank goodness that we got that training from one of these big companies out there that you know, sells these evaluation process packets. That what they want to see is the passion for, yeah, I, I wanted to make sure that I connected with all my staff and helped them improve. So I agree with you completely that I think there is a bit of a barrier there that we need to work on shattering. Because I don't think any of the school lawyers in this state have said to their clients, no, you shouldn't adopt a Danielson or Marzano method, but that should not be a substitute for your philosophy on teacher improvement. It, you're not going to solve it in the piece of paper. You're, it's going to make it more likely that you want to form good relationships with the staff members you're trying to help improve. And so you're going to be less honest in the evaluation itself anyway. It actually works against what the school lawyers may have, you know, air quotes wanted when they said things like, don't make our jobs harder. And so, yeah, I've got big thoughts on that stuff, Kim, to be perfectly honest with you, because when you see it play out uh, in hearing, nobody's talking about how awesome our instrument is. What we're talking about is what happened on the ground. What efforts did you make? And it's not hard for a school board to look and see when somebody was passionate about it, whether they believed it or whether this was just this box I had to check because the school lawyer said, here's the next step. I mean, it's just so clear to see it play out. One of the things when the seed team goes out and talks to districts, we make it very clear that the seed process isn't something that is asking districts to do that's in addition to what they're already doing. It's just a process to help them articulate a little bit better 
what data they have about their teachers and principals. What processes do they have? In addition to evaluation, that's one of the processes, but do you have any other processes in place that help you know your staff members and help you know why they stay? We, we use that line a lot. Why do they stay? Know them well enough that you know why they stay. So if Rule 10 ever gets revised, one of the things that we want to be intentional about, you know, you talk about the focus evaluation. Well, of course, the focus is on evaluation because that's the only policy that's mentioned for educator effectiveness in Rule 10. So if it's ever revised, one of the things that the C team will probably include will be not only a policy around the evaluation of teachers and principals, but also policies, making sure that districts have a policy around the support and development of their teachers and principals. And that just makes it a little bit more intentional. We've talked to lots of districts about that. And just, just the other day, we had a conversation with somebody and the superintendent said, well, that's probably necessary because that's going to make us really think about what we do. I mean, that district is very competent in the way they support their teachers and principals, and they don't have a lot of turnovers. So my guess is they're pretty darn good at it. But to be able to articulate what it is that they do is just huge. And so they thought that that was a pretty good idea. And again, we've had some pretty positive feedback about that as well. No, I think that, Bobby, what you said really stuck with me and it connects to even what Kim just said. When you said, if they have an understanding of we, we want to support and develop and do all these things, we have to have an 86 page evaluation document. I think that that would ring true for a lot of districts and a lot of the, maybe the vendors, right? Trying to support that mindset. But at the end of the day, that evaluation is still evaluation. And when you said shattering the barrier of it's what you're doing on the ground and that's ongoing that is the process that you are supporting teachers, the conversations you're having, the environment you're creating. I think people really need to understand how powerful it is. Again, from your perspective, hearing when you're in a hearing, a principal communicating what their support development process is and talking through that, which may or may not be written down at all on the evaluation document, but that is the power in the process. And I do think we have fallen into traps where if we don't have it written down and in this document that we can check off and we've tried to fit that round peg into that square hole and it maybe it's as simple as just releasing ourselves from that thinking to really prioritize what we know makes a difference and Kim it's the same thing with policy from a C perspective we're just trying to get districts to begin thinking about formalizing, right? I don't know if there'd be a, a district out there that really wouldn't have a process of some sort for support and development, but let's formalize it, put it in a policy. But again, if they leave it at that, it's going to be just that. It's going to be this thing on paper and you don't have to have everything just in this perfect document where everybody can look at and go through a process of support and development, as I said, is about humans, which is extremely complex, but we all know we know it when we see it, we know it when we hear it, and that stuff matters. I think the problem might be, or, or a challenge might be, principals that maybe are so focused on the policy and the procedural things as a leader that they don't give themselves time to really think about what this means to me as a leader. What does this mean when I'm going into this school? How can I communicate my ability to support and develop my teachers? What does that look like? What do I want them to hear from me? What do I want them to feel about my leadership? And 
gosh, that's probably the thing that leaders are, are the best at, but we just haven't given them permission maybe or prepared them in a way that they can really stand on that and say, you know what, your leadership can really grow from the things that you really believe in and the things that you really understand. You don't have to have all the answers. That's why support exists. That's why resources exist. That's why networking, that's why colleagues, that's why peers, friends, we learn so much from each other. But I just love how you stated that very simply, and I complicated it with all my words, but the ability to formalize your thinking and, and what that support means to your staff, how that matters in the end. I think that's something that everybody can learn from, and I think it's great advice. I agree. I defer to the folks, you know, on what, what policies are going to be required and stuff, you know, how sometimes schools feel about that. But it's my opinion that every school is doing what we're talking about. What is not clear to them is how exactly that should be viewed by their school lawyer or viewed by the department and freeing them up to do what they went into this job to do is absolutely better for everyone. And I guess I just couldn't agree more And principals and, and administrators are often surprised when we have to go through the process of preparing for a hearing. We certainly talk about what's on the paper, but that's a very small percentage of it compared to me wanting them to shine in front of their board of education that employs them. And being honest about the things that the teacher was doing really well, but also making sure that they shine in, in talking about how they were an effective leader in that building, built educational culture, and, and all the things that look better to a person sitting there wondering what really happened here. The paper just doesn't ever tell all the story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have to say that I'm really enjoying today's conversation. This is just a fascinating topic, new for me, really, to be able to uh, think about this work this deeply uh, and appreciate all three of you weighing in on this topic. But as can be the case, 30 minutes goes really fast each and every week as we put these episodes together. And so as we bring things to a close, I'd just kind of like to make a little bit of space. Is there anything we've not brought up to this point in time that we would like to share before we bring the episode to a close? I guess from my perspective as the, the guest here, I just want to say thanks again for the invite. I appreciate the idea that this will be an ongoing conversation. Uh, I appreciate the, the seed folks asking for, for the perspective of a school lawyer. And while I certainly don't speak for all of them, what I can tell you is whatever happens, uh, we're going to get questions about it. And so I appreciate the ability to be involved in some of the conversation about how things are going and where it's coming out, because yes, it's true. At the end of the day, I've got a statutory and regulatory job to do but feel very strongly about a lot of the issues that we are getting questions on from our clients tie back to this in so many ways. And so I, I guess I just appreciate the ability to be, to be a part of it and the work that everybody's doing to, to focus on this. We appreciate your involvement, appreciate your insight. And I agree, gonna be an ongoing conversation and one that is, that is really important and one that I think a lot of people are, are interested in. So. Andrew, thanks for the opportunity for us to speak together. And Bobby, thanks for taking the time. This is an important part of our work and we've got to do it together. So we appreciate it. Absolutely, Ryan. I could not agree more. If you look at just the nature of the conversations we've had over the course of this podcast series, all the voices that the SEED team has welcomed in to provide different lenses to influence the work that they're doing on behalf of teachers and principals statewide is just encouraging. It's been incredible to be the host and fly on the wall for these dialogues from time to time. Uh, and so thank you all for your work. Uh, and for those of you that are listening in, uh, thank you for continuing to check in on this conversation and all the conversations that we're having through the, this particular means of communication. So 
Thanks to everybody, and we'll see you next week. 